everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. Just spent the weekend cat-sitting. Mm-hmm. So can't complain about anything. And you're prepping for your trip to San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Which, now, when when this episode comes out, it'll be after. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I'm not sure how the time distortion on that works, but yeah, by the time this episode comes out, you'll have gotten back already, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are you feeling about the upcoming trip? I am panicking. I got an email from the airline today that was like, hey, it's 72 hours before your flight. And I was like, it's 72 hours before my flight! And I'm not packed yet. Yeah, you're definitely one of those, like, show up at the airport very early kind of people. Oh, definitely. But that is how I am doing. What are we watching today? Well, today, Sarah, we are watching The Invisible Man's Revenge. Okay. And this is the fifth film in The Invisible Man series. Uh, We skipped movies three and four uh, because they weren't horror, mm-hmm. uh, but we have, we did cover the first two movies, so let's, I guess, give a brief recap of those, sure. uh, in case anyone here has not heard our episodes on them. For sure. So, The Invisible Man, the first movie that Ben's kind of referring to came out in 1933, but The Invisible Man has been around even longer than that. Um, it was first published in 1897 from H.G. Wells. I mean, the 1933 movie is pretty close to it. In the novel, it's a scientist in optics who manages to change his body's refractive index to that of air so that it neither absorbs nor reflects light. So the idea is, like, you can see through air across the living room, whatever, so by changing my body's refractive index to that, then you would be able to see right through me. Mm -hmm. The... Procedure, but also the ensuing violence that comes of being invisible and also kind of power going to Griffin's head. He starts to plan kind of a reign of terror and he's eventually defeated, I guess, uh, through mob violence. He's beaten to death and then he returns to being visible when he dies. Mm-hmm. The major plot beats are kind of similar in the 1933 The Invisible Man from James Whale starring Claude Rains as the titular man. If you want to hear about that movie, that's episode 43, and it's currently ranked number 8. Oh, so So, it's still pretty highly up there. Yeah, top 10. Was the idea that the invisibility drug drives you insane in the novel, or was that something that they introduced in the movie? So that was from the 33 movie. In the novel, it's kind of explicitly that, like, Griffin... Just kind of goes mad with power. He's just like, I am invisible, therefore invincible. Right. So it's just it's just more about the idea that, like, because he can't be held responsible for anything because he's invisible, he just starts doing things because he can get away with it. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, whereas Jack Griffin, in the 33 film, he is a chemist working with a fictional drug called monocaine. Right. Monocaine. It has kind of a, a bleaching power, 
but anyone who's exposed to it goes insane. And so in this way, even though the movie is pre-code, it, it, it's able to have the insanity be the result of something, not just inherent in someone. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of an out. Yeah, because the, the movie explanation is, like, the idea is that the drug drains all the color from you. Yeah. Which means that you are then invisible. <laughs> yeah. So similar to the novel, uh, Griffin plans a reign of terror. Um, and I think that episode, is we have it titled The Terrors of Anonymity, because part of the reason why we, we ranked it so high and really felt it resonate um, is because of how frightening it is when like you go kind of mad with power with being anonymous. Mm-hmm. Dissimilar from the novel, uh, Jack Griffin in the film dies from gunfire, uh, and he returns to visibility upon death. And that's when we see Claude Rains' handsome face. Yeah, the only time in the movie. Yeah. Seven years later, we would get The Invisible Man Returns from director Joe May, starring Vincent Price. Right. Uh, So that episode, if you want to listen to The Invisible Man Returns, it's episode 72, and it's currently ranked 61. So... Pretty far down compared to the first one, but not bottom of the list. It's interesting. We've we've been bringing it up a lot lately as this kind of like demarcation point where it's like The Invisible Man Returns is mediocre and it's like not anything special, but it's still like trying to be a legitimate horror movie. So it's like this demarcation between like good movies and bad movies that we've been using a lot lately. <laughs> yeah, because everyone involved is very good at their jobs. Um, they're really trying, but all of the bite that was in the first one has kind of been removed. Yeah, and not necessarily because the movie itself is super tame, but like it's just doing things that the first movie already did, so it's no longer as shocking. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it was seven years later, so audiences would have been like super into seeing all that stuff again. Mm-hmm. Now, what's kind of neat with Invisible Man Returns is uh, it had Kurt Siedmack as co-writer, along with Joe May. And I believe Kurt Siedmack continues being involved in the Invisible series. And that was the first movie we'd seen from Siedmack, on Scream Scene anyway. Yeah, yeah. He has a, a long history and uh, a long future for, yeah. on, on the show. Yeah. Um, so The Invisible Man Returns is also, like, it's actually a sequel. It's not trying to do anything with the H.G. Wells book or anything like that. And it starts with Sir Jeffrey Radcliffe being sentenced to death for the murder of his brother, but he's innocent. So his friend... Dr. Frank Griffin injects Radcliffe with the invisibility drug so he has a chance to escape and basically find his brother's real murderer. And they do this despite knowing the risks for the drug to cause insanity. And Frank Griffin in this movie is the brother of Jack Griffin from the first movie. Yeah, and throughout the whole movie, Frank is like struggling to try to find a cure before Radcliffe starts to go insane. Mm Mm-hmm. As the insanity starts to grip Radcliffe, um, he does do some crimes and he does torture one person involved, um, Alfred from Batman. Right, yes, Alan Napier. Um, And he does discover that it was his cousin, Richard Cobb, who orchestrated the whole murder of Radcliffe's brother and framing of Radcliffe just in order to get ownership of the family coal mine. Right. Cobb confesses during a chase 
and uh, dies from being shot, but also falling from uh, a coal wagon. Mm-hmm. Just double dead there. Radcliffe is also fatally shot, and there's still no cure to the invisibility by the end. Now, Cobb was a terrible employer, so all of the employees of the coal mine offer blood transfusions to help save Radcliffe's life, and it's these blood transfusions that make him visible again, um, allowing doctors to operate and save his life, remove the bullet, Mm -hmm. such and such. So you can kind of see how, like, it's much more convoluted, and... Part of the reason why it doesn't have as much bite is because we're so focused on, like, this other family, and the Griffin family is just kind of related, Mm -hmm. just bringing the invisibility potion, as it were, into their lives. And just like in the first movie, we only see Vincent Price at the very, very end when he becomes visible again. Do we not see him at the beginning because he's in jail? He escapes from jail invisible. Yes, he escapes invisible. That's how he escapes. So he's already invisible when the movie starts. Uh, Cool. Okay. The Invisible Man Returns, like I said, came out in 1940, and it was such a success that that same year they had The Invisible Woman, mm-hmm. a screwball comedy, and then two years later, 1942, The Invisible Agent. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, 1940s The Invisible Woman was a screwball comedy. Uh, It was completely removed from any continuity from the first two movies. It was just, hey, we have this effects process now, let's use it for some other things. Uh, Which you can't really fault them for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, John P. Fulton did the invisibility effects for all of these movies, and he was nominated for an Oscar for The Invisible Man Returns, didn't get it. I suspect he would have been nominated or even won for the original movie, but that category of Oscar didn't exist in 1933. So in The Invisible Woman, uh, John Barrymore plays an absent-minded old inventor, type, kind of old fuddy-duddy, who creates a machine that can make people invisible. Uh, You kind of like step into the machine and then step out invisible. And actress Virginia Bruce is his test subject, um, and she wants to be invisible so she can use it to get back at her mean (laughs) ex-boss. Some gangsters steal the machine And the Invisible Woman learns that while the uh, state of invisibility wears off after a bit, drinking alcohol restores it. Uh, So she gets super drunk and goes to, like, get the machine back from the mobsters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So once again, the effects in The Invisible Woman were by John Fulton, who was nominated again for an Oscar, uh, losing to the war movie I Wanted Wings this time. The director of that film was Edward Sutherland who directed Murders in the Zoo, uh, but who was more typically a comedic director. Yeah. Uh, The script uh, was co-written between Kurt Siedmak and Robert Lees, who wrote many Abbott and Costello films, as well as 1941's The Black Cat. The Invisible Woman was a hit at the box office. It grossed $659,600 on a budget of $269,062. So, like, three times what it costs. Right, exactly. The fourth film in the series was 1942's The Invisible Agent. Uh, And this was a World War II spy thriller, basically. This entry was fully written by Kurt Siedmak. It's perhaps his most explicitly anti-Nazi film at that point. Uh, In a lot of his earlier works, he was kind of being anti-Nazi by way of metaphor, 
Would this have come out before or after Wolfman? Oh, after, definitely. Wolfman, if you recall, came out like two days after Pearl Harbor happened. Right. Yeah. The lead character in this film is Frank Griffin, a.k.a. Frank Raymond. He's sort of changed his name to be incognito. And he is the grandson of Frank Griffin from Invisible Man Returns, the brother of Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man. And that sort of implies that the story of the original film was set in the 1890s, like the novel, but I don't think that was actually the case in the movies. I think the movies were contemporary. It is universal, Yes, it continues the proud universal tradition of, what year is it? At least Invisible Agent is pretty specific about what time it is, because the war is on. So, uh, regardless, uh, the story of the Invisible Agent is that a German agent, played by Cedric Hardwick, and a Japanese agent, played by Peter Lorre, are after Frank Raymond to give them the secret of invisibility, uh, so that it can be used by the Axis. He escapes them, but he's reluctant to give up the formula to the U.S. government until after Pearl Harbor happens. Uh, and then only on the condition that he be the only one allowed to use it. You know, because he has all the experience in the world to be a spy. Yeah, I mean, I think they sort of were counting on the idea that, like, when you're invisible, you don't have to be good at being a spy. Uh, But yeah, he's definitely, like, not good at being a spy. Um, He becomes an invisible agent parachuting behind German lines and having spy adventures, assisted by a German double agent played by Alona Massey, who was uh, Baroness Elsa Frankenstein in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. In this film, there is no mention of the insanity caused by the formula. Uh, Instead, here the side effect is drowsiness, but it is initially still not reversible. At the end of the movie, when uh, Frank Raymond and uh, the German double agent he's teamed up with finally make it back to England, uh, it's revealed that he is visible again, And how that happened is just a... National secret! secret. Yeah. So this entry in the series made uh, just over a million dollars on a $322,000 budget. That tracks, because it's a propaganda film. Yeah. That's all about bombing Germany and getting back at the Japanese. Yeah, and fuck Nazis. Yeah. And, like, yeah, all the Nazis in this movie die, like, very explicit, gruesome deaths. The code Um, does not apply here. And again, John Fulton was nominated for an Oscar, losing this time to Reap the Wild Wind. So that brings us to today's movie, which is The Invisible Man's Revenge. And we're back... (laughs) It's really just John Fulton's revenge for not getting the Oscar. Um, Just if at first you don't succeed. Um, (laughs) And we're back to the horror genre. However, this is a complete reboot of the franchise, sharing no continuity with any of the previous movies. It is produced and directed by Ford Beebe, the prolific director of westerns who also helmed the second and third Flash Gordon serials and 1942's Night Monster. The script for this entry is by Bertram Milhauser, uh, a writer who had been working in films since 1911 and who wrote four films in the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes series for Universal. So despite being a reboot and technically playing a completely different character, uh, Robert Griffin this time, I believe, John Hall returns from Invisible Agent, 
to play the Invisible Man. And one of the notable things about Invisible Agent is because there's a bit of story before he becomes invisible and he gets restored at the end, we see more of actual John Hall's face than we do of any, like, previous Invisible Man. And that's true again here. So Hall was 29 years old when he made this film, uh, which means I guess he would have been 27 in Invisible Agent. He was born under the name Charles Lochner. His father was Swiss actor Felix Lochner, and his uncle was author James Norman Hall, who co-wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. Hmm. Throughout the 1930s, he struggled with his acting career, uh, bouncing from studio to studio, sort of taking what jobs he could get. His first big hit was in Samuel Goldwyn's The Hurricane in 1937, where he played um, a Polynesian character. Oh, no. Now, I think, because this is going to keep happening to John Hall, I think this might have been because, um, although his dad was Swiss and, you know, he was definitely a white dude, he was, like, raised in Tahiti, so I think he just had, like, a tan. And in Hollywood (laughs) in the 40s... If you have a tan, you can be anyone. That's good enough. However, after the hurricane, Goldwyn didn't really know what to do with Hall, Uh, in terms of casting, and so it was three years until his next movie. Uh, Hall moved to Universal in 1942, where he first appeared in the movie Eagle Squadron, which was a colossal hit, uh, and that led to his casting in Invisible Agent. This was followed up by the film Arabian Nights, which was Universal's first three-strip Technicolor movie. Oh, good for Um, them. And it was an even bigger hit than Eagle Squadron. Eagle Squadron made about $2 million at the box office. Arabian Nights made $3 million. This was then followed by a series of adventure movies in exotic locales uh, with essentially the same cast. Uh, These were White Savage in 1943. Oh, that, that can't be good with a title like that. Cobra Woman in 1944. Oh, God, they just keep getting worse. Alibaba and the Forty Thieves in 1944. Okay. Gypsy Wildcat in 1944. Oh, my. Oh, my. And Sudan in 1945. Like the name of the country? Yeah. Okay. So, in these films, Hall was typically teamed with Indian actor Sabu, Turkish actor Turhan Bey, and Dominican actress Maria Montez, who was known as the Queen of Technicolor. And all of these movies were Technicolor movies. So these were kind of, I guess in a way, the highest budgeted movies Universal was kind of putting out at this time. And basically the premise to all of these is they would be set in some far-off land, and, like, nobody's a white character. So they had, you know, it doesn't matter, they've got a white guy, an Indian, a Turkish guy, and a Dominican, and just wherever the movie's set, that's what race these people get to be. Okay. So after Universal, John Hall worked for Columbia Pictures, including an appearance as Robin Hood in 1948's The Prince of Thieves. If Hall is sort of remembered for anything at all today, it's by older audiences as the star of the television series Raymar of the Jungle from oh. 1952 to 54. Oh no, Ben, so much cringe. Well, uh, here's something you can be excited about. John Carradine is back in the type of role we first fell in love with him uh, as a mad scientist. Excellent. Uh, So the first time we've seen him as a mad scientist since Captive Wild Woman, but not the 
only time he's played a mad scientist since. He had played a Nazi mad scientist in Revenge of the Zombies, uh, which was a horror comedy about the Nazis trying to create an army of Nazi zombies. As you do. The Invisible Man's Revenge would be Carradine's fourth film of 1944, following Voodoo Man, The Adventures of Mark Twain, starring Frederick March. (laughs) One of those movies is not like the other. And The Black Parachute, which was directed by Lou Landers. So, perhaps surprising nobody, Evelyn Ankers is the love interest in this. Listen, she she has steady work. That's all you can really hope for in this time period. We just saw her in Jungle Woman, which was her previous film to this. Uh, and this was her fifth film of 1944. Also appearing in this movie is Gail Sondergaard, who we first saw in 1941's The Black Cat. She was like the evil housekeeper of the old lady who dies, who was like upset that not everything was left to her. Yeah. Um, So she was born Edith Sondergaard in 1899 in Minnesota, and she was a New York stage actress and didn't make her film debut until 1936's Anthony Adverse. And for that performance, she was the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Damn. She was almost the Wicked Witch of the West for Wizard of Oz during a phase in production when they thought that the witch might be like a glamorous vamp type character. Okay. uh, Before they changed it to sort of just being a traditional witch. Okay. She was the titular Spider Woman in the 1943 Sherlock Holmes film of that title. And she received a second Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress in 1946 for her role in Anna and the King of Siam as the King of Siam's first wife. In the 1950s, her husband, director Herbert J. Bieberman, was investigated by HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And he was named as one of the Hollywood Ten. Uh, a member of the Communist Party, and she refused to denounce her husband, so she was blacklisted and returned to doing stage work in New York. Another familiar face in a minor role is Lester Matthews, who we'll recognize from Werewolf of London, The Raven, and The Mysterious Doctor. His role was originally supposed to be played by Edgar Barrier, who was Raoul in the 1943 version of Phantom of the Opera, but Barrier was unhappy with the roles that Universal was giving him and dropped out of the movie. Shooting for The Invisible Man's Revenge took place from January 10th to February 17th, 1944. Like a month? Mm -hmm. That's surprising to me now. We've just done like a slew of like one week. I think, you know, with these movies with the intricate invisibility effects, you just can't... You have to shoot every scene at least twice, right? Yeah. Okay. uh, The film had a budget of $314,790, and it was released June 9th, 1944, and grossed $765,700 at the box office. So about double... Yeah, about double what the budget was, uh, not as much as what Invisible Agent did, which might explain why this was the final Invisible movie for Universal, at least until Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, uh, which is some years away. So how are we watching this? Well, Sarah, today you can see The Invisible Man's Revenge as part of the Invisible Man Legacy Collection on DVD or Blu-ray. Cool. 
Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, get a hold of that box set. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Invisible Man's Revenge, directed by Ford Beebe from 1944. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to scream scene we just finished watching the invisible man's revenge directed by ford beeb from 1944 sarah yeah what did you think of this movie i was pretty into it until uh the last two scenes basically um well like the last couple of lines in the second to last scene is like judgment was done from a higher court than ours and then the last scene is, here's an explanation of the movie you just watched, which did not need an explanation at all, and actually got things quite wrong. I wasn't enjoying this movie, and then I was enjoying this movie, and then I wasn't enjoying this movie again. <laughs> and ultimately, I think it evened out to, I didn't really enjoy this movie. Oh, really? Were yeah. the parts that you enjoyed the John Carradine parts? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's walk through the quite convoluted plot of this movie. Yes, there are a lot of characters, um, but I'll be kind of skimming through what goes on. So the film follows Robert Griffin, who is a dock worker who escaped from an insane asylum, uh, and in his escape he actually committed two murders. He had been in the insane asylum because he was an amnesiac. While at the asylum he was hit on the head, and that helped him regain some of his memories. He had been on an expedition in generic Africa Mm -hmm. with Jasper and Irene Herrick when he was hit on the head by a falling branch and presumed dead. So they left him, the expedition continued, um, and that's his story. So now that he has regained this memory, he intends to go and get his share of the diamond mine that the Herricks did eventually discover. So when he makes it to London and makes it to the Herrick family estate, he demands his share. But unfortunately, as Jasper explains, all of that was lost in bad investments. This giant house, that was inherited. So Griffin decides to demand all of their current fortune, including marrying their daughter Julie, who is Evelyn Ankers. The wife, Irene, goes... You know what? Let's let's have a drink and we'll talk about this. And jugs his whiskey, and they kick Griffin out and leave him on the side of the street. He's found by sort of crook type of fellow named Herbert Higgins, who's a Cockney cobbler. Yeah, he's like the kind of person who gets into mischief and no good, Nick. But like, he's not like he dabbles in crimes. If he can get away with it. Yeah, he's one of those guys who's looking for, like, a get-rich-quick kind of scheme. He lives in, like, a, like, stone cottage in the woods and <laughs> is just, like, this, like, generic old pub man who yeah. gets into trouble with the law from now and again. So Higgins does try to help Griffin by trying to blackmail the Herrick family for essentially, like, leaving this drunk guy out on the streets and nearly drowning. A side story I won't get into. <laughs> 
but he has no luck with this blackmailing attempt, so Griffin is forced to move on from the town. As he's heading out, he comes across Dr. Peter Drury, who is John Carradine, and he turns out to be a scientist turning pets and animals invisible, including his very loyal dog, Brutus, Mm -hmm. who is invisible. Um, and he kind of manipulates Griffin a bit with, like, certain language, like, yeah, you know, get back at the gentry, two against one is easier when you're invisible, type of language. Only a coward would reject the chance to become a guinea pig in a scientific experiment. (laughs) What are you, a pussy? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. So Griffin uh, agrees to be turned invisible. Uh, Once he is made invisible... Uh, he leaves the doctors, and he's like, no, I'm going to go get my revenge. And the doctor's like, but wait, my fame, my scientific fame. And Griffin just pushes the doctor out of the way, and he's like, no, my revenge. Yeah, I wanted to show you to committees in London or whatever. <laughs> so Griffin begins to blackmail Jasper for basically the whole estate when they are interrupted by Irene, and there's this really neat moment where... Griffin takes water from an aquarium, splashes it on his face, and spooks Irene, who then goes mad. And we don't see her again for the rest of the movie, but there's talks of nurses, and Mm -hmm. she won't be calm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Griffin also uh, goes back to see Herbert and uses him as a means of getting around town and interacting with people. There's a sequence where he helps Herbert win rent money by doing a game of darts, basically. Yeah, It's a whole thing. They cheat at darts. Yeah. So Jasper is at his wit's end with Griffin, uh, who is now demanding, no, you have to marry me to Julie. Like, I'm I'm going to marry Julie. Mm -hmm. By the way, Julie has a love interest who I've not mentioned at this point. His name is Mark Foster, who is a reporter. He's not important yet. So in order to delay Griffin's advances, Jasper says, look, how are you going to marry her if you're invisible? Come on. So Griffin's like, ah, but I will become visible again. So he heads back to Dr. Jury, who we see just finishing up his experiment to turn Brutus back to being visible. Um, He's like a German shepherd, uh, a very well-trained German shepherd, I might add. And Dr. Jury explains that they would need a full-blood transfusion from another person, and that would kill the donor. Mm Mm-hmm. Griffin's like, ah, great, I'll just get Mark Foster over here. Yeah. He's a journalist who wants to find the Invincible Man, I'll do that. The doctor calls up the police instead. That gets Griffin angry, so he knocks the doctor out and uses him as the donor, killing the one awesome person, like, absolutely perfect person in this movie, John Carradine. Well, the the character he plays. Mm Mm-hmm. After Griffin drains the Doctor of Blood, he sets the house on fire. Brutus, the dog, does escape and chases Griffin back to the Herrick Mansion. Now, uh, Griffin goes by Martin Field, an old friend of Jasper's, in order to stay at the house and start to get close to Julie. He can't leave the house because Brutus is out there howling like a werewolf. Mm -hmm. Griffin pays Herbert uh, to try and, like, deal with the dog. Take care of the dog. Uh, Take care of the dog in whatever means possible. So Griffin, as Field, starts to turn invisible again while he's at the house. So he finds a way to lure his romantic rival, Mark Foster, down into the cellar where he attacks Mark and knocks him out and plans to take his blood. He told him he had a nice cask of Amontillado down there. (laughs) 
The chief constable happens to arrive at the house, Mm -hmm. following up the lead of a Robert Griffin, someone matching Robert Griffin's description, coming to the house a day or so ago. And just as the police enter the house, Brutus eludes capture and rushes into the house, down to the cellar, comes in and attacks Griffin, saving Foster. And Griffin is mauled to death. Mm -hmm. And then the chief constable looks down and says, oh, he's dead. Looks like he was tried by a court of a higher power or something along those lines. He also says, like, the invisible man will trouble us no more or whatever. And it's like, when did you find out he was the invisible man? Well, it's an this, invisible man bleeding out. I mean, he's, bleeding he's, he's, out. he's I think he's semi-visible, though, by the time they get down. It, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And then we get the last scene of the movie that I was complaining about before, where we have Julie and Mark and the chief constable sitting around a fire talking about, wow, what a thing we just experienced. Mm-hmm. Griffin was so pitiful with his crazed brain, thinking he, there were imaginary threats coming at him. And it's like, um, excuse me, I don't think these threats were imaginary. Pretty sure Irene Herrick, Defs tried to kill him in the jungle, mm-hmm. and Defs drugged him in the house. Yeah, they, they try to make this recurring point about him being paranoid, about like him having this sort of like um, persecution complex. And I mean, that's sort of true in that he does think everyone's out to get him, but like, you know, it's not paranoia if everyone really is out to get you. Um, and then they try to tie that into like the idea that like he was out for revenge against those people. And so it's ironic because he was killed by a dog that was out for revenge against him. And it's like, that's that's some tortured stuff right there. That's just the plot. And then they somehow try to make that follow up into the, like, old, like, there are some things man is not meant to know, <laughs> like, thing. Where it's like, it was his own fault because he meddled with nature, and when you do that... Nature comes Metals with... Back. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh my god, just stop, please. Yeah. yeah, the end. So you mentioned, Ben, that you really only liked the Carradine parts. That's not entirely true. Those are mostly just my favorite parts. I said at the sort of near the top of the hour that this movie had no continuity with the earlier Invisible Man movies. And that's true, but there are... It's interesting, like, what things it decides to bring from the earlier versions. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we've got John Hall as the guy who becomes invisible. In this one, he has a mustache. Um, The explanation for how invisibility works is more like the novel than the earlier movies. Yeah, talking about optics and the refractive index and such. But the cure for invisibility is the same as the one in The Invisible Man Returns, which is getting a blood transfusion from a visible person. Yeah. So Only in that case, maybe because they had so many people, but it didn't kill the person. Yeah, because it wasn't a full, it wasn't one for one. Um, And yeah, I think that's because they had like a little bit from everybody. All of those examples ignore the fact that you can't just take blood from whoever the fuck and put it in you. That's... (laughs) <laughs> why blood types are a thing. But, you know, whatever. It's it's a horror movie. It's fine. There's an invisible guy in it. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to dock it for science too much. On a technical level, I think this movie's fine. Uh, John Fulton keeps finding ways to push the invisibility effects and do things that haven't been done before rather than just kind of resting on their laurels. 
There are some occasional moments where the illusion is shattered if you know what to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of little oops-a-daisies moments. But overall, the FX are quite strong, and I admire the fact that they're continuing to try to innovate. Ben and I earlier today watched The Invisible Agent, uh, not for, like, research purposes, just for, like, fun purposes, because mm-hmm. um, we're fun people. And <laughs> <laughs> Please believe us. <laughs> and um, so that movie is two years before this one, mm-hmm. and the effects in it were way better executed. I don't know if it was because of a higher budget, because it was, like, a propaganda-type film versus a horror movie. Uh, the budget on Invisible Agent was $322,000, and this film was $314,000. So comparable. So they're comparable. I think they're they're trying more different things in this one, though. Trying to do the stuff where he, you know, puts powder or water on his face, or just how he interacts with objects. They're trying new things. The, the shot where he, like, tosses a statue uh, onto a lower floor from an upper floor balcony. It's from his POV. Like, there's just a few more things going on. I think what it is is there's more effect shots of invisibility in this movie than the previous movie, which means that they probably have less time to work on each really individual shot. I think part of why I was, like, super into this movie for, like, a significant portion of the beginning is because... Everyone kind of seemed to be a bit awful. Like, Irene is mm. definitely guilty. Mm. Um, and Jasper, like, is clearly, like, being led along a bit. I think I was just, like, super into Irene. Yeah. Um, and then when John Carradine showed up, so it's, like, thundering outside. And when he opens the door, he's crouched over, and you can't really see his face because it's in the dark. And just when he's like, oh, you're a criminal? come in the lightning flashes on his face it is absolutely perfect um and especially that first scene with him he does a really good job of being like creepy uh and definitely manipulative um yeah everyone was just trying to manipulate everyone else so i think i was really into that but then like the last scene is like you know those were all imaginary and even even if, like, that's just the constable, like, not really knowing who these people really are, then that's also, like, all these people's reputations aren't even tarnished with this whole thing? Like, what was the point of this whole thing, then? What were you trying to say with this movie? Yeah, I don't think this movie knew what it was trying to say. What I liked about this movie, the things that I liked, I thought that John Hall was fine as the psychopathic Robert Griffin. I think he's best in the scenes where he's, like, invisibly taunting people as a disembodied voice. It kind of has a similar feel to The Shadow, if you're familiar with that character, who would often, like, do the same thing to criminals. I I totally agree with you. The best scene in the movie is the introduction of John Carradine's character. Personally, I thought when he sort of first manipulated Griffin into becoming his test subject, I kind of thought or hoped that Carradine would continue to kind of be this puppet master mm-hmm. character. Uh, but Griffin ultimately gets the better of him and kills him. And then it's like, well, the scenes where Griffin threatens um, Jasper and Irene Herrick are very good. Um, you know, there's a quite a few of them, and I think all of those were very well handled. But for me, most of the rest of the movie was super boring, mm-hmm. uh, as far as my money goes. I lay the blame for the stuff I don't like about this movie entirely on the part of the screenwriter. Uh, In my opinion, the story is unnecessarily convoluted. 
It has way too many characters who just drift in and out with hardly any character development. I think only Griffin and Dr. Drury are really multidimensional characters. Um, The thing I really like about Griffin is the movie plays it ambiguous all the way through just to what degree he is like a put-upon guy back for revenge versus like a total psychopath who just thinks everyone is out to get him. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's never quite clear because we never like flash back to whatever happened in Africa. So it's just we're getting like people's variant stories. And Dr. Drury is interesting in being a like ethically questionable mad scientist in a horror movie, but like not willing to do murder. Right. And like he's not out to like rule the world either. Like he just wants some super soldiers. Yeah. He just wants to prove that he invented invisibility. Like his plan after getting Griffin invisible is like, okay, we'll go to London. We'll show you to like the Royal Academy of Sciences. I'll get a bunch of awards and like a knighthood. It'll be dope. Like that's (laughs) as far as his evil mad science goes, which is really interesting to see something a little bit more multidimensionality in a mad scientist character. I think that the Herricks, what multidimensionality they have is really being brought to those parts by Lester Matthews and Gail Sondergaard, Mm -hmm. who I think are bringing a lot of dimension to underwritten parts uh, through their acting. Sondergaard especially in this regard. Like, I think what, you know, Irene does drug that whiskey, but the movie is really subtle about it. She just, like, asks everyone if they want a drink. And she kind of has this, like, sly look on her face, and she, like, brings the drink over, and he has it, and then he, like, you know, does the woozy-woozy thing. Yeah, she's like, it's a little smoky. Yeah, exactly, which is (laughs) the only clue. Like, it doesn't do the thing where, like, we cut to a close-up of her, like, dropping some pills in or whatever, right? Like, it's very subtle about it. Um, And I think a lot of the subtleties about Irene, about, like, the stuff that makes you think, oh, maybe she did knock him over the head on purpose, are coming from Sondergaard's performance more than the text. And ultimately, I think she gets cheated because she has two scenes in the movie where she gives her character a lot of intriguing layers, and then she just disappears. Yep. Just like, whatever. And that happens. She becomes the mad woman in the attic. Right. But we don't even, like, get to see that. It's just something that's kind of mentioned offhand in another scene. Like, if you know, you blink and you miss it kind of thing. And that's so true of so many characters in this movie who just kind of come and go mm-hmm. arbitrarily as if there are characters who are treated like they're important And then suddenly they aren't important anymore. Yeah. Um, The chief constable is a really good example of that. He shows up early in the movie as a friend of the Herricks. And it's like, ah, it's the famous Sir Frederick Travers of the blah, 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 blah. And he shows up and it's like, oh, what a big deal guy. And then he vanishes for 90 minutes and shows up at the very end, which is like, I just happened to stop by so I could arrest somebody. You mentioned that the screenwriter wrote like Sherlock Holmes movies. Yes. That fits the structure. That this movie has, I think, in terms of, like, introducing some, like, people here and there and throughout, um, and the the detective coming in at the end saying, like, here's the solution to everything. I think the other thing is, um, you know, I was saying the writer got his start in, like, 1911, right? And there's something sort of old-fashioned about Mm -hmm. the story structure here of the, like super convoluted story for no reason. There's 10 million characters and you don't give a shit about 90% of them. Like, that feels very, like, old-school pulp serial style where you're just writing on fumes, sort of putting words down on the page and hoping to keep the serial going for another month, you know? It's interesting, then, how, like, the writing is old-fashioned, but the acting 
is, uh, this isn't quite the right word, but, like, progressive, like, forward thinking in the Mm. sense of, like, bringing something to the role, whereas, like, when we were watching movies from 1911, those characters, the actors were playing those characters wooden. Now, speaking of bringing something to the role, I think... The, the four people I mentioned, John Hall, John Carradine, Lester Matthews, and Gail Sondergaard, are the only people doing that. Like, Yeah, Evelyn Ankers is just so, like, blah. Everyone so else... <laughs> I think Evelyn Ankers is tired of being here. Yeah. Um, everyone else in the story is just kind of a walking cipher. They're characters who work only because we've seen their archetypes in a million other movies. So we, as the audience, just can kind of fill in all the blanks without being told anything. But none of these characters have personalities or desires or anything. They're just walking mouthpieces. There's Evelyn Ankers' character, Julie, who's just the young woman. And that's kind of it. She really has to be tired of doing these at this point, because... Despite the fact that Julie is a big part of Griffin's motivation, she never appears in a scene alone with him. She, in fact, never appears in a scene alone with anyone. In fact, she hardly has any scenes at all in the movie. She just sort of pops up every now and again to remind you that her character exists. Yeah. It's it's really bad. Her love interest, Mark Foster, is just the reporter. We just get told he's a reporter, and then we can just fill in his whole personality without ever being kind of told what his deal is. He doesn't have any scenes that are, you know, by himself. The movie is about Griffin and stays with Griffin the whole time, but it means that all the other characters just feel like plot devices. And the thing that bothered me the most about Mark Foster is that the only notable thing about him is that he looks just enough like Robert Griffin for it to be confusing. Yes! And it's not a plot point. It's just that they cast two handsome, dark-haired white guys with pencil mustaches opposite each other and thought that was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of the fact that Julie has no personality (laughs) does lead you to go like, well, why does Griffin even want her. Mm-hmm. And you get the impression, because, like, they say that the expedition was, like, five years yeah. ago. Yeah. So, Julie would have been, like, if she's, like, 23 now, she would have been, like, 18 or whatever. Yeah. So, Griffin knows Julie from before. Yes. Um, however, because of Gail Sundergaard's uh, performance mm-hmm. here, here's my theory. Okay. My, uh, I guess you could call it fan fiction, my meta text. Your headcanon. My headcanon. Of of what went on. So, like, there's something I didn't quite mention. Um, right before going on the expedition, they brought on, like, a napkin. Like, yeah, we'll split it evenly. Yes. Across everyone. And that's that's the whole motivation of Griffin's, like, uh, revenge, is that, like, he didn't get his share or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he, he has this piece of paper as, as proof that he deserves it. Uh, they're recounting the accident, and Irene says, all I remember is saying, watch out, and that's all I had time to do. So it places Irene at the scene of the accident. Mm-hmm. So either she bonked him on the head, yeah, or like failed to like help him afterwards. Sure. In any case, you have to wonder. Well, why? Mm-hmm. One is the money, mm-hmm. but they hadn't discovered the diamond mine yet. Right. Yeah, they weren't assured of anything at that point. So either at that point he had already been like going to get Julie. And she was like, nope, because we start the film with uh, Irene and Jasper being like, huh, is Mark a good match for a girl? I think so. 
like kind well, of talking about who to pair her up with. What's interesting about that scene is it me is that scene where they talk about is Mark a good match tells us that when they later um, Griffin comes to them and he's like, I want my money. And they're like, we don't have any. Like, it, it's all gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that they aren't lying to him. Because when they're talking about Mark, uh, I forget which one of them says it, but one of them's like, yeah, but he doesn't have any money. And, the, you know, the other one's like, well, yeah, but beggars can't be choosers kind of thing. So the idea that, like, they need to marry into some money, uh, you know, as well, right? Yeah. It's weird, because, like, it's straight up said in the text that Griffin knew Julie from before. And the movie doesn't quite go there, but it gets it, it inches right up to basically saying, like, ah, yes, five years ago she was but a girl, and now she is a woman. And so now, like, I can marry her, and it's not creepy and weird. Yeah. Um, what's weird is that Julie doesn't remember him at all, because when he shows up and he's like, I'm Martin Field or whatever, she's not like, really? Because you look exactly like Robert Griffin. Like, so she didn't know him from the before time. Like, really... You, what we're learning here is like a horror movie should not have a backstory this fucking convoluted <laughs> yes. or, or if it's going to be this convoluted to like leave so much of it to interpretation. And like, why does this movie need to have a backstory about like an expedition to darkest Africa? Like, why is that? This is again, what I mean when I say like the, the plot feels very like old fashioned mm-hmm. because that's exactly the kind of shit I would expect from like a turn of the century serialized novel for it to like have just all of these (laughs) plot elements that don't matter it's like um do you remember house of mystery from 1934 i do because i think they use some of the sets (laughs) they look so similar but like yeah where that story starts as like an expedition to india to like steal some diamonds or whatever the hell and then it ends up being like an old dark house movie and it's like who cares yeah it 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 bugs me how much the two male leads look like each other. Like, that's just bad casting. Like, have one of them shave their mustache or something. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's just, like, the chief constable, whose entire personality is he's the chief constable. Mm-hmm. Or Herbert Higgins, who's just kind of a comic relief drunken Englishman. And I just sit here wondering, like, why I should care about any of these people and why are even half of them in this movie? There's there's a lot of stuff in this movie like that where I just wonder why we're spending time on it. This movie kind of continues the universal tradition of being set no when. Yeah, it's in London, but no one mentions the war. It's a time period where rich people drive early 1930s cars and speak with American accents, and everyone else dresses and acts like it's the turn of the century and live in woodland cottages with gas lighting and have thick England country accents. Oh, you're so angry. All right, I feel like we're kind of going in circles of just ragging on this movie. Structurally speaking, the plot takes forever to really figure out what it's even doing. Uh, You know, it takes a long time for him to become invisible, and then he's invisible and he kind of just, like, goofs around on people and threatens them for a while, and it's like, okay, now I need to become visible again. I disagree about this. And then he's visible again, and it's like, cool, now I'm threatening people while I'm visible. Oh, now I need to, you know, whatever. And finally, what the plot kind of finally settles on is the kind of old universal standby of needing people's blood to keep going, which has, like, been a standard element in their horror movies. So I disagree. Like, from the get-go, we're following Griffin. He's, like, breaking out of this, like, crate Mm -hmm. on the dockyards, and 
every moment, like, the tension's kind of building in terms of, like, well, who is this? Someone finds a newspaper clipping in his jacket uh, that's like, oh, he's an escaped murderer from an asylum? Like, what? And then when he gets to the mansion, like, I mean, I was like, why are they welcoming him? Now he's blackmailing them. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just very clear, like, this is a bad guy. And then when he met the doctor, it was like two baddies going and trying to manipulate each other. So at no point did I feel like the plot in terms of Griffin was wandering. I, for me, where my attention started to wane is once he becomes invisible. Because he starts making the threats to the Herricks, and he scares them a bunch, and then kind of nothing happens for a while until he realizes he needs to be visible again, and it wastes a bit of time. And then once he's visible again, nothing really happens for a while until he starts becoming invisible again. Yeah, but that's like the next scene. Mm, yeah, I guess... I think I think you just have a problem with the pub scene with the darts, because that's the only other scene in there. I think the thing is, is I keep comparing it to, uh, you know, the original Invisible Man or the second movie, which all felt much more focused to me. Uh, and maybe that's a good way to transition into talking about ranking, because I mm-hmm. think if this movie has a problem, it's that it's not really about anything the way that the original was, And when it tries to make a point about what it's about, it kind of flounders. Yeah, because I think, you know, you could probably do a story very similar to this without the invisibility, and it wouldn't change a heck of a lot. Mm. It's sort of a very stand... To me, it's a kind of standard, like, English countryside revenge story with the invisibility thrown in. So, I get where you're coming from with comparing it to The Invisible Man Returns. I think this is more focused because we follow Griffin the whole way through and sure we have that meandering portion at the pub, but otherwise like it's pretty in the horror genre like he scares Irene to the point of madness, sure. right? Whereas one of the only like comparable like terrifying or um horrifying moments in Invisible Man Returns is when he's torturing Alan Napier in the cottage. My thing is It's not just that the plot is meandering, it's that there is a surplus of characters who don't matter and I don't care about, and you could simplify that a lot more, and I feel like there was better economy of characters in Invisible Man Returns. Sure. Um, It's also interestingly comparable to Invisible Man Returns in the sense of, like, invisibility being brought into an otherwise, like... Unrelated story. Yeah. Again, for my money, uh, where I'm kind of thinking for ranking, I think this is a better film, a better horror film than Invisible Man Returns, which is sitting at 61. But the highest I would kind of put this is um, maybe right around number 55 with Lemain du Diable, The Hand of the Devil, um, because that also was kind of meandering. That was with the hands kind of going from person to person. Yeah, I don't think this is better than The Mummy's Tomb, which is above that. Um, So that's kind of my range, 55 to 61. You're a lot higher than I am. Oh, interesting. But I'm willing to come up higher, uh, because one of the things I notice in your range is, like, Ghost of Frankenstein is in there. Yeah. And that movie's bad. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I was looking, for whatever reason, my first thought went to 1935's Werewolf of London which is down at 87, which to me was also like an example of a reasonable horror premise kind of being done in a subpar way. But I thought, you know, this could be better than that. So I started looking up the list and I got to Man-Made Monster at number 77, 
which I thought was more creative and enjoyable than this movie. So that kind of ended up being my range, 77 to 87. I'm willing to go higher than that. Um, But I personally disagree about this being better than Invisible Man Returns. Now, if we look at kind of what's in between there, that's Invisible Man Returns to Man-Made Monster, 61 to 77. That's quite a... That's huge. That's a, that's, yeah, that's quite a um, stretch. But the midpoint there, the exact midpoint of that range would be number 69. (laughs) Nice. The Mummy. Mummy. (laughs) So is this better or worse than The Mummy? Well, what's interesting is The Mummy itself didn't have anything to say. It was just Egyptian Dracula. Mm -hmm. But Karloff brought something to that role um, and had... Like a feeling of like, no, you're, you guys are colonizers and should probably get out of Egypt. Also, if we're talking about the idea of like, oh, something so terrifying it drives someone insane. Yeah. We actually see that in that movie in the opening rather than it just being something that we hear about happening to a character off screen and never performed. Even like the moment when Irene goes insane, like we see her reaction to the invisible wet face Mm -hmm. um, and she screams and then we crossfade immediately to something else. Whereas in the opening of The Mummy, um, we see like the feet kind of going past, like you you hold on the horror longer. Yeah, and he he cracks up laughing and, and all this kind of stuff. There's, you know, a thing where... Looking below The Mummy, we've got movies like Supernatural, Vampire Back, and Yuina, which are all flawed movies, but have a lot of, like, originality to them, where Supernatural was, like, a bizarre fucking movie, but it was also about, like, a lady serial killer's dead spirit possessing this other lady to, like, kill a bunch of dudes. Mm -hmm. And then, like, Vampire Bat, which, like, wasn't great, but was kind of about, like, scientific vampires and like a a weird artificial creature in a jar that needed to be fed blood and about like mob. Oh yeah, the sponge! Yeah, and about like mob violence and how they all turn on Dwight Fry like for no evidence. You know, and then you have Genuina, which is deeply flawed, unfortunately. But also like really bizarre and full of like, you know, bonkers ideas. And this movie is... What's creative about this movie is basically taking invisibility and putting that into, like, a English countryside, you know, mystery story, right? Like, the the normal, I think your Sherlock Holmes comparison was really apt, because I feel like the standard version of this story would follow characters other than Griffin, like, uncovering this plot or whatever. And instead we follow Griffin, but he's also invisible because there's a mad scientist who lives in a cottage in the woods nearby. I guess what I'm getting at is I think on a technical level... Invisible Man's Revenge is better than some of these movies, but I'm not sure how much points to award for, like, originality to some of these. Well, I mean, like, if you're looking below The Mummy, like, The Return of Dr. X is above those. That's true. Um, And so is The Devil Doll, actually. And, like, The Mad Monster, Lady and the Monster, uh, which is, like, interesting to compare in the sense of, like, not quite sure how to make this story not so convoluted, mm-hmm. um, but still having pretty good production value. Yeah, I thought the cinematography in Lady and the Monster was superior to what we get here on a style level. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of special effects cinematography yes. going on here, which complicates matters in terms of how 
like flashy you can get, I think. Yeah, and Lady and the Monster was using cinematography to further its story mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. Now, right below Lady and the Monster is Voodoo Man. I'm, I think this could go above Voodoo I'm, Man. Yeah, I'm willing to, to say this is better than Voodoo Man. Okay, so sure. do we want to put it above Voodoo Man and below Lady and the Monster? I feel good about that. Okay, cool. So entering the list at number 64. It's like the curse of the 60s. I know. The Invisible <laughs> Man's Revenge from 1944, directed by Ford Beeb. I think it's just like... There's a lot of real, like, middle-of-the-road, mediocre movies coming out at this period. (laughs) Which makes sense when you've relegated horror to B-movies, but it's also being made by, like, decently competent filmmakers, so it kind of averages out. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is, like, pretty much middle of the list, hey? There's, like, 113... Yeah, we're up to 114, which would make the middle of the list... Number 57, Ghost of Frankenstein. Oh, boy. (laughs) If you would like to see this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to all of the episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us on the podcasting app of your choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. If the service that you listen to the show on allows you to leave a rating or a review or a comment, we would really appreciate any of those things. We enjoy getting your feedback and would love to hear from you. Uh, we would also love it if you would share the show with uh, friends who you think might enjoy it, whether you do that on social media or just over the water cooler. Uh, If you happen to work at a job that involves a water cooler. (laughs) Uh, Another way that you can help out the show if you enjoy it is to head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month, and uh, you'll get a on-air thank you for that. At $5 a month, you get access to weekly bonus audio that we put out every Monday featuring cut content from previous episodes. At $10 a month, you get access to unique horror short fiction that I write solely for patrons. And right now, I am doing a sort of serial story, so each bit that comes out is a chapter. And if we hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing a bonus fifth episode a month that covers horror-adjacent films, which means we might go back and do bonus episodes on, like, The Invisible Woman or The Invisible Agent. Or Abbott and Costello meet The Invisible Man. Right. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, we're sticking to a theme, Sarah, which is to say it's another sequel. Oh, okay. But we are away from Universal... We're over to Monogram for Return of the Ape Man with Bella Lugosi. Is this the last of his Monogram 9? You know, it might be, Sarah. Looking forward to it, I guess? I guess. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.